0: Hi, I'm Rev. Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who gather each week to be an inquiry and dialogue on living the spiritual life. We're all on the spiritual path, growing in our understanding of ourselves and others, and moving from being complainers to being empowered to simply being. We know that we can't change the world unless we change ourselves. Welcome to The Forum. Welcome everyone to the Spiritual Forum. I'm so glad you're here. I'm here with such a fascinating guest today. His name is Bob Vedder. And Bob is a cultural anthropologist whose work concerns the intersection of spirituality and healing in diverse indigenous cultures. His original fieldwork focused on native North American medicine, especially that of the Southern Plains. Along with his adopted uncle, medicine man Richard, I should have gotten this name right, Tartsa? Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Richard Tartsa, he authored the book, The Big Bow, The Spiritual Life and Teachings of a Kiowa Family. Bob has studied the traditional Mesoamerican healing system called, now this is the thing I should have gotten a pronunciation for. Let me try it. Curanderismo?
1: Curanderismo. That was pretty close.
0: Curanderismo. I was pretty close. Curandami, curandorismo <laughs> with teachers. Uh, both in the United States and in Mexico, and he maintains a healing practice as well as a community sweat lodge in New York. So I'm going to stop with the uh, the introduction there because I really want to hear all about your story. But I just want to first welcome you and thank you for being on on the Spiritual Forum podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Carol. What a pleasure.
0: Yeah, I'm real. I'm really interested in talking to you. Your story is so deep, so vast, so varied. And I'm so envious of all of the Native American uh, healers that you've met and who've adopted you, and your whole story about uh, what it took to to become the healer that you are today. So would you be willing to share with everybody who's listening today uh, kind of your story and also your your healing story
1: sure so. We may go down a few rabbit holes in the process. Uh, I love rabbit holes. <laughs> then let's travel together, shall we? Okay.
0: okay.
1: So, you know, my my story begins, I, I guess, in childhood when um, I just felt that the the answers that I got to my deeply spiritual questions I felt like were were not answered sufficiently either in science or in going to church, you know, as a child and going to Sunday school. And the, I, I had a lot of questions and I just felt like none of them were really answered. So from the time that I was about 11 or 12 years old, I, I was already reading things about alternative spirituality, which was even odder at that that point in time, um, you know, because it was not, it, it was not something that everybody talks about in the way that they do today. So I was reading things about yoga and meditation and Taoism and Hinduism in junior high and in high school and um, practicing Kundalini yoga back then, which was really unusual. Uh, I had an altar set up in my house. So I went to college upstate New York at SUNY College at Oneonta and studied anthropology with a minor in philosophy. Because I was interested in looking at how other cultures answer these questions that I felt were not sufficiently answered. And anthropology, well, I should start with philosophy. Philosophy answered those questions on an ideal level. And anthropology looks at how people actually act as opposed to the way that they say they act or they think. So I was interested in Asian cultures, mostly. Um, while I was in college, I went to India, and I had planned on going on to do fieldwork in Asia. My Now, my area of interest was the intersection of spirituality and healing, as you said, which nowadays is not that unusual, but it was unusual at the time to think of those two things as lining up. So I I went on it's kind of a long story about how I ended up there but I ended up going to the University of Oklahoma to graduate school first with a a major in philosophy and um I showed up and I absolutely hated the courses that I was taking now I had a full assistantship and I was ready to pack it up load up my car and drive back to New York from Oklahoma but at the last minute I decided that I would walk into the anthropology department. And I told them, I told the the, um, the head of the the department that I had this assistantship in philosophy, and I, I was wondering if there was any way for me to switch it to anthropology. And I didn't find out until later that what had actually happened, he didn't tell me this at the time, but he said, yeah, maybe we can do something with you. I found out later that literally like that day, somebody had walked out on teaching the Introduction to Anthropology course, and they needed somebody desperately that day to teach. So I went (laughs) from being an undergraduate to teaching undergrads immediately. There's a
0: synchronicity there. (laughs) It was,
1: exactly. And it, and it, it is what makes me think that this was my destiny, as opposed to like a random event. Because what happened was it was too late in the semester for me to take classes, And it was a catch-22. I had to have a full course load in order to be enrolled in the department and have the assistantship, but it was too late in the semester for me to enroll in classes. So what they agreed was that I uh, I would do an independent study project in what's called ethnography. Now, cultural anthropology has two branches. One is ethnography. Which is the fieldwork branch of it, which has to do with going into a particular uh, community or uh, a culture and going in with a research idea and then living in and among the people and learning from them, becoming what we call a participant observer. The second branch of it is ethnology, which is where you take an idea and you compare it with cultures all over the world, you don't necessarily go and do the field work, but you coordinate data that have to do with all these different cultures. So my area of interest was the ethnography part. Now, I figured that since I found myself in Oklahoma, and they had the highest population of Native Americans of any state in the country, and you know a lot of things that I didn't know, I really wasn't particularly interested in American Indians or Native Americans at the time. But I figured I would just do a quick study to fulfill this goal. And <laughs> I, I went and I met with an advisor. And I told him what my interest was. I told him that I was interested in in healing practices. And I said, what I'd like to do is to try to meet a medicine man. Now, this w- this man was an old man at the time. Um, my advisor, who had been doing his field work among the Plains Apache or Kiowa Apache people for many, many years. So, this is 1980. Now, I, I'm in Oklahoma, ready to begin my field work. Now, I thought that if I told him that I was interested in finding a medicine man, he would just tell me somebody to talk to. That's really what I thought was going to happen. What he actually told me was, well, you're going to have to use a networking approach. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you'll have to meet somebody who maybe will introduce you to somebody else, who maybe will introduce you to somebody else, and maybe eventually you'll meet a medicine man. Now, I thought that was a terrible answer to my question, because, you know, he, he obviously knew people in all these communities, and I figured he could just hook me up. So I left really, honestly, very, very disappointed. Now, I, I had been sharing an apartment with a guy that um, that I just met on a, a message board, um, this guy, Jim. And I went back to, to the apartment and I, I told him what had just happened. And I said, you know, I don't know where to begin with this. Now, keep in mind. Not only did I not know anything about where I was or the people there, I didn't know anything about Native Americans. I didn't know anything about anything that I was stepping into at this point. So Jim said, well, you know, maybe I can help you. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how are you going to help me? And he said, well, you know, I'm part Comanche. So maybe the next time that some of my Comanche family gets together, I could bring you as my guest. So I said, oh, yeah, that's great. So it turned out that that was like a few weeks later. um, He had some family members who were gathering in a park in a town called Lawton, Oklahoma. So now this is about an hour and a half ride from where we were in Norman, where the university is. So we drove down. We got there, and it was a typical American Indian gathering. The, The women were all in one area. They were kind of organizing the meal, and the men, who were mostly older men, were sitting in a circle of folding chairs under a shade tree. So we walked up and you know Jim just said who I was and I I said, hi, I, you know, nice to meet all of you. And maybe it's because I'm a New Yorker, but I I, I came, I just said directly what I had in my mind that I said, you know, hi, I, I'm I'm a graduate student in anthropology and I, I was hoping to meet a medicine man. Well I said that and it was like you could hear the crickets. Uh-huh. Nobody said a word. They just—they all sat in their chairs, staring at me. Yeah. So I—I, I, you know, paused for a minute. I—I I didn't know what to say. And gratefully, a moment later, one of the women came up and they—and she said, "Oh, the—the the meal is ready." So we went and sat down and ate. Now, after the meal was over, one old man came up to me kind of quietly when nobody was looking and he said, you know, I heard what you said about wanting to meet a medicine man. He said, from what I know, we have one medicine man left in our tribe. I don't know his name and I don't know where he lives, but I know of another old man who might be able to help you. He said, his name is Woodgie Watchataker. Now he doesn't have a phone, but maybe I could draw you a map and, and you could try to find it on your own. So he, he took out a piece of paper and he drew me a map because there was no address to go to. So Jim was there and Jim said, oh, well, you know, if you want, I'll go with you. So I was thinking, oh, well, this is great. You know, at least I'll have somebody who's Comanche who's going to go along with me. So now l- let me say, Jim did not Look, Comanche. You wouldn't have known that he was Comanche, and he really didn't have what I would describe as much of a, a knowledge of the culture, at least that I could be aware of. So the next week came, and Jim and I decided to to drive down there. We got in my car, and you know, a, a ride that should have been an hour and a half ride ended up being like a two and a half hour ride because we got lost. We uh, we got hopelessly lost and finally found this little house kind of off by itself. And we got out of the car and we walked up to the front. And I remember thinking as we were walking up, I'm so glad Jim is here because, you know, he'll know what to say. So we get up to the door, and knock on the door. And this old man answers the door with long gray hair and braids. And he was looking at us and I was waiting for Jim to say something because I figured he he was going to say something. And apparently Jim was waiting for me to say something. And the three of us were just kind of staring at each other. So now, you know, I figured I'll just say whatever comes to my mind. And I said, hi, I said, my name is Bob Vetter. And I'm a graduate student in anthropology. And I was hoping that you would talk to us a little bit about the Comanches. And again, there was that silence where he just stared at me. And then finally, he spoke and he said, this is how you come to my house? And I didn't know what he was getting at. So I said, yeah. And he said, this is how you come to my house to see me? And I said, yeah. And he said, come in here a minute. And he opened his door and he pointed to a couch that was right next to the door in the living room. And he said, sit down there. So he invited us into his home, but this was clearly not a friendly invitation in any way. And he stormed out of the room and he he came back a minute later and he had a painting in his hands. Now, it turns out that he was a, a very famous and really amazing painter of traditional Comanche themes. So he held up this painting of a dancer and he said, he said, see this. And I said, wow, that's really beautiful. And he was like, he wasn't really interested in what I had to say about his artwork. He said, he said, I'm an artist And I have better things to do than to sit around talking to you. And another thing he said, that's no way to visit an Indian. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, if you're going to visit an Indian, the least thing you could do is bring him something to eat. So now I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. So I just got up off the couch and I said, I'm really sorry. And Jim and I got back to the car and drove all the way back to Norman kind of in silence because both of us were a little rattled by what had just happened. So I, I don't know, we were just about back to Norman and I, I mentioned something about going back and he said, you're going back to that guy's house. You're and I said, yeah. Food, and he said, he, he said, I wouldn't go back to that guy's house if you paid me. And he, you know, he was kind of upset about it and kind of talked about would you a little bit. So the next week came and I, you know, let me preface this by saying that I was a very, very poor graduate student at the time. My student loan hadn't come in. I had a beat up old Ford Pinto and like no money to buy anything for anybody. So I bought a a pathetic few groceries that I had in a paper bag, but at least it was something. So You know, I drove back, got to the same house, got to the same door, knocked on the door. He came to the door again. And this time he looked at me and he looked at this paper bag in my hand and I handed it to him. And he got a big smile on his face. And he said, now that's the way you visit an Indian. And he invited me into his home. Only this time. He invited me in, in a very kind way. and. We started to talk, and it turned out that even though he was not a medicine person, he had a lot to tell me about medicine and traditional Comanche culture. It also turned out that his wife was the niece of a very famous Comanche medicine woman that a book was written about called Sanapia, Comanche Medicine Woman. So I ended up talking to both of them about these topics about healing, about the old ways. And, you know, I told him that I I had heard that he knew about this medicine man. He said, oh, yeah, I know him. So I said, well, do you think you could introduce me to him? And he said, well, yeah, come back. You know, we'll talk about it. So I left. I came back. Now, I I met with my advisor and, you know, he told me that I should have a, a research agenda. I should have all these questions to ask. Came back the next time we talked, I asked lots of questions. I said, um, so do you think you can introduce me to that medicine man? And I said, yeah, well, today's not a very good day. So I came yeah. back again, and this happened over and over again. Now, it, it was getting later in the semester, and I was getting concerned because, you know, I had this major project that was going to be coming due. So finally, I got there one day, and, you know, it was the same thing. And I said, look, you know, I know that you're really busy, Maybe if you tell me where he lives, I could just kind of go on my own. And he said, all right. And he took a napkin out and he drew me a map on how to get there. And then he explained it. And it was like, yeah, you go to the third the third ranch and you make a left and then you go across, down this dirt road and over this wooden bridge. I mean, these were the kind of directions that he was giving me. And he said, you got that? And I was like, Yeah but I really didn't have it at all. So I I was just about to get back in my car and he came running out from behind me. He said, hold on a minute. He said, you know what? You're you're never going to find this on your own. He said, I'll go in my car and you can follow me. So I got in my car and he started driving and I followed him. And now the sun is going down. The sun is setting as we're leaving his house. So I'm like seeing through with the headlights, you know, we're going, we go over this rickety wooden bridge. We're we're in the back end of absolutely nowhere. And we get down this dirt road that ends up in a cul-de-sac. So we we drive around the the circle. So now I'm facing one direction. His car is facing in the opposite direction. And all he did was open his car door and put his hand over the top and point, and he said, that's it, and he drove away. So now I was in a situation that I really hadn't counted on, which is I'm at this guy's house, he doesn't know I'm coming, it's pitch black, dark of night, and I don't have anything to give him as a gift. So I drove down the driveway, and, you know, there was this long approach to a a house off in the distance, and I, I, get I get to the end of the road. I park my car, and all of a sudden, I see the light go on inside, and then I I see this shaft of light as the door opens, and then it slams shut. And all I could think at the time was, I don't know where I am. I don't even know if this is the right house. Somebody, for all I know, could be going in to get a shotgun, and you know they could kill me, and I. Uh-huh. Nobody would even know that I was here. So I get out of the car and I'm like cautiously making my way up to the door. The dogs are barking at me and like nipping at my feet as I'm walking up to the door. I knock on the door and the door opens and an old lady answers the door. And I said, um, I said, hi, I said, I'm, I'm looking for Oliver Patapone. And she said, uh-huh. And I said, does he live here? And she said, uh-huh. And there was this like silence for a moment because she didn't invite me in, but she didn't tell me to leave either. And I said, finally, I said, well, you think I could talk to him? And she said, I guess so. And she opened the door and and I walked in. Now, in my mind, please understand that I knew nothing. So, I, you know, I had this stereotype in my mind of what it was going to be like to meet a medicine man. And I figured I'd, I'd go in and he'd be sitting in a teepee smoking a pipe, you know, that this was the, the, the idea that I had in my mind. And I walked in and here was this old man sitting on a couch watching a football game on color TV. And I, I laughed to myself because I realized that it was, you know, this silly stereotype that I had. So I, you know, I told him who I was and I, I told him that I would love to talk to him if he would be willing. And he just told me in the, the warmest way possible. He said, he said, yeah, he said, um, come back next week, we can talk. And then he told me how to get back to the highway and, you know, told me to be, be careful going home. So the next week came. Uh, so I drove back home. I met with my advisor and I told him what had happened. And he said, oh, that's really good. And I said, so I can proceed with my project. You know, I'm going to talk to him about medicine. And he said, Oh, well, I wouldn't talk to him about medicine. And I said, Well, what do you mean? And he said, Well, you know, that's a very taboo topic. Now, meanwhile, he didn't tell me any of that before I had made all my other mistakes, (laughs) right? So I, I said, Well, what do you think I should talk about? And he said, Well, you know, maybe you can talk about the old stories, the mythology and traditional stories of their people. So I did a little research, I had a pad a yellow legal pad of questions that I was going to ask him. I got there this time, and I, I met with him, and we sat down. And and I said, do you mind if I ask you some questions? And he said, sure. And I said, um, well, can you tell me about maybe some of the traditional stories of your people, the, the old stories? And he thought about it for a minute. He said, well, he said, um, yeah, you know, my wife talks to somebody – not my wife. He said my – My wife's relative, I forget who it was, speaks to somebody at the university about things like that. He said, but as far as I'm concerned, those are nothing but a bunch of fairy stories. He said, if you really want to know about things that I know about, I'll tell you what I went through. And I can verify that because these are things that I went through in my own experience. And I said, Sure, I'd love to hear that. And he told me this story. Would you like to hear this story, Carol?
0: I would, but I want to first pause and reflect a little bit on everything you said. Sure. And then I want to hear the story because everything seems so divinely guided in this in this story of yours, of your story. That, and also, I, I have to say that you you kind of relentlessly pursued this. Now, part of that might have been youth, you know, like young people. <laughs> when we're young, we do all sorts of crazy things. Yeah. But you you didn't get stopped along the way. And I want to pause and have our listeners reflect on that a little bit, because so many of us stop when the first door doesn't open or the first door opens, but it's rude. Or, you know, the guy you went with was supposed to speak, but he didn't. Or, you know, there's, there there are a number of times during the story you just told me that you could have stopped, given up and tried something else or been at, taken offense or anything like that. So it's almost like something was planted in you to pursue this work and you just kept going at it. And and the first person let you do the next one, the next one led you to the next one. And you just kept trusting that inner, I, I think it must have been kind of inner intuition that you were moving in the right direction. Is, is that right?
1: Well, I'd like to think that, looking back on it now, at the time it it just seemed like, oh boy, there's another obstacle in my way. But you, you
0: keep going. So was it just the assignment that you were you were uh, you know like you had to do this because it was your goal and your assignment?
1: I I honestly thought that there was that there was some wisdom here. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. know a mm-hmm. lot about mm-hmm. the people, but but I I knew enough to say that there's something here. There's some message here. There's something here that that I need to know about.
0: Right, right. Because you talk about it when you were 11 or 12, you're you you're you're reading and looking at completely different things than other 11 and 12-year-olds are. Um, yeah. I kind of was looking at some weird things when I was 11 as well, or 10. There's something that I think that this journey kind of was almost like um, part of your destiny or something.
1: That's exactly how I look at it now, looking back. Back. Yeah. I mean, at yeah. the time, it was like, "Oh my goodness, what is going on here?" <laughs> you know.
0: And you kept going, and I think that's really impressive because I think that's really impressive. So go ahead, tell me the story.
1: So here, let me tell you the story the, to the 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 best way that I can. Okay. What he told me was, he said, "I didn't set out to be a doctor." He he referred to him to himself as an Indian doctor, and I I realized that the term Indian is not exactly PC, but he I wanted always, to, yeah,
0: I'm interested in that too. That's what he referred him to himself. He
1: as, always correct? referred to himself as an Indian. And in fact, yeah. the elders that I know today, most of them still use the word Indian. So just for okay. the listener to not be put off if I use the word Indian as well,
0: right? Um, that that's why. Term.
1: So he said, I didn't set out to be a doctor, but I got sick. He said, I, I went into the hospital and the doctors told me that I had terminal cancer. And I stayed there long enough for them to conduct a series of tests and procedures. And finally, one day they came in and they said, Oliver, they said, um, they said all the doctors had a series of meetings over your case. And we've decided that there's nothing else that we can do for you. If you want to stay in the hospital, we can minimize your pain but we've exhausted everything that we know to do for you. And he said, no, he said, I'll go home. And his son and his daughter came into the hospital room and he told them, I want to, I want you to take me out there to the hills and leave me there. Maybe I can take care of this in the way that our old folks used to a long time ago. Now, what he was talking about is what anthropologists and non-native people might refer to as a vision quest i mean most most native people i know don't really use that term but you know it's it's classically considered um a very important part of plains indian life way back in the old days where a boy when he was about to become a man or in some cases a girl when she was about to become a woman would go up to a place of power a, a known place of vision questing, and stay there with no food and no water. And you would decide on a number of days beforehand that you would stay there for. No food, no water, no shelter, no companionship. And they say that if everything is right about you, you might get a vision, which very often came in the form of an animal that you'd have this encounter with, but there would be something unusual about the encounter that could include a message or a gift or a song or words spoken by that animal or that being to you. So he was kind of describing this when he said, take me out there to the hills and leave me. So his son brought him to this place uh, at the edge of the Wichita Mountains in southwestern Oklahoma. And he said, uh, you know, I asked him, well, you know, what did you have with you? And he, he said, well, all I had with me was um, a sheet to cover up with four corn shucks and some tobacco and an eagle feather. So the the four corn shucks were to roll, they're called prayer smokes. They're They're like cigarettes that are rolled in a corn husk. And the purpose of the the eagle feather is spiritual power and protection i guess is you know i don't think he would have necessarily used those words but i am so he said um you know they he left me there and i i sat and i smoked four times four is a sacred number like mm-hmm. the four directions and the four seasons so he said nothing happened and he said i was I was laying there towards morning, and I could hear a rustling of leaves over by Mount Scott, the mountain that he was facing. And he said, When I looked up, I could see something flickering, and then it would stop, and then it would flicker again. And I started to realize that this was something that was coming towards me, and it kept getting closer and closer, and closer. And as it got close enough to me, I could make out what looked like a human form. Finally, he said, whatever this thing was, he referred to it as the visitor. He said, that visitor got right up in front of me. And as he was approaching, I was so scared. I was shivering. I I was like a fish. When you pull a fish up on dry land. It just flops around, helpless. And he said, I was that way. Finally, though, when it got right in front of me, it shot me with this fire. And when it hit me with the fire, that was it. I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. I couldn't talk. My heart stopped. Everything stopped. Until finally, that visitor started to speak to me and my Comanche language. And he said, son, what are you doing here? And Grandpa Chief said, I'm I'm sick. And the visitor said, there's nothing the matter with you. They sent me to take care of somebody who's really bad off. And the visitor was just about to leave, but he turned back and he said, son, he said, did you know that this whole world that we live in stops. It comes to a standstill for just a moment right before the sun comes up. And that's the time when things like me can enter into this world. And then the visitor turned and took off to the West. And that was the last time that Oliver Patapone saw him. Wow. And he said that was the end of my cancer i asked well did you go back to the hospital and he said no he said no but i was fine from that point on and he said i then i was i was walking through our little town of apache oklahoma and this woman came up to me and she she was an old lady at the time and she had she was a comanche medicine woman she looked at me and she said, son, what happened to you? And he said, nothing. She said, no, no, I can see there's something different about you. What happened to you? And he said, so I I told her the whole story. And she said, well, you know, you're good for something. She said, you might not know what that is right now, but sometime soon, you're going to figure out exactly what that is. And he started to think about some of the things that he observed when he was a boy. Now, let me give you an idea of the time that we're talking about. I met him in 1980, and he was over 80 years old then. So when he was talking about the things that he observed as a boy, you know, we're talking about late 1800s or early 1900s, back when, you know, these old men had very different sensibilities and ways of being in the world. So he, he said he, he started to think back to some of what, we, what he saw about the ways that these old men had done their doctoring that he had seen when he was a boy. And all of a sudden he realized that there was something in that experience that he had that was helpful because people started to show up at his house. Rumors started to go around about that that he must have some power. He must have some way to be able to help out people who are sick. And his method of doctoring is something that we sometimes refer to as coal doctoring because what he would do is he would take he would build a fire. And he would take a red hot coal out of the fire and put it in his mouth in order to activate the power. And the way that he described it to me was he said that sickness is like a fire and you've got to fight fire with fire. And he said it, it has to be a red coal. He said a gray or a black coal won't do it. It has to be red hot. But he said that that would activate this power with, within him and that then he could put his hands on somebody And they would be like his his analogy was that it's like when you work with cement, when it's wet, you can move it, you can shape it to the way that you want it. And then when it dries, it dries the way that you want it. He said in the same way, when I have that power activated in me, I can manipulate the person's flesh so that it'll stay that way afterwards. Wow so he you know he explained all of this to me and um i continued to go and meet with him on a regular basis uh i did you know my field project over the course of that semester and you know of course continued along with it in the months and the years that followed and then eventually he adopted me as a grandson um and you know i would later on find out that this is a fairly common thing that that if somebody in one of these indigenous communities if they like somebody who's an outsider they'll take them into the family as a family member even though you're not related by blood and so that's the way he became my grandpa um so he became my grandpa and his his wife became my grandma, Esther. And that was sort of the beginning of my personal journey in all of this. So that that took me through until about 1980, December of 1984, I moved back to New York. And um, he passed away sometime not long after that. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other stories about that, but we have a, a whole big trajectory here to continue with. So I'll, right, I'll pause right. for a quick moment, Carol, and yeah, ask you if you have any questions.
0: Yeah. So, so his healing story is so interesting. It's almost like, um, a couple of things come to my mind, you know, this visitor comes in this kind of crack in the matrix or whatever else you want to call it at, at a certain time is, is able to come in and perfectly heal him and then um, he he was able to become a healer. I guess he intuitively figured out his own process with the coal and whatnot. But was he actually successful? I mean, did people refer to him as a successful healer?
1: Yes. He was yeah. known as a healer. Now, I, what I'll also tell you is that very often they're a healer, a, a, a medicine man in these communities would largely become a specialist and what he came to be known for was Bell's palsy. Okay. And, um, it's somewhat, it has the, the term ghost sickness, Uh but that was his area of specialization. But to me, the, the most fascinating story that I, that I kind of put together that still is with me today is that, Your own healing has the clue to the way that you work, that your medicine is what it is that had to be healed in you. So in other words, if it was the fire that healed him of his sickness, fire became his vehicle of working with his patients, which has amazing implications.
0: Yeah, and... And I and I think about how clunky Western medicine is. You know, I mean, we we look at something called a disease, and from the beginning, I think we normalize disease. Oh, okay, well, you're sick, I'm sick too. What's your sickness? What's my sickness? Mm-hmm. But that that uh, um, visitors that you're you are not sick. You know, it's, it's almost like it, it isn't your truth, and and it, it seems very miraculous. And I know that um, uh, the stories of Jesus healing. Also seem kind of miraculous, and people are, they go, that couldn't have happened. You know, it must have been something else. You know, it must have been something else. But here is happening here in in our lifetime as well.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I, so you know, and I think that it's also important to consider that part of the story of Jesus as a healer. Yeah. That that his way of being in the world was to heal people of their afflictions, which really reinforces that. Again, that connection between spirituality and healing.
0: I just think there's so many doubters. Like that's that that had to be some fantastical myth. Like that's not couldn't possibly be true. It must be symbolic, or it must just be a fairy tale. Like you know, your other guy said. But it these things do happen, and I think we don't know how to explain it away. So we just kind of like distract ourselves with something else, unless you decide to immerse yourself in it, as you are as a a (laughs) healer now.
1: So so should I continue on that?
0: Please do. Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: Wind us through this story. So, yep. uh, so I moved back to New York. And, you know, I had mostly been with his family and, you know, a couple of other families. I came back to New York and it was not too long after I came back, another couple of years after I came back, that I had the seed for this idea of uh, bringing people with me to meet some of the elders and the people that I had known over those years. And so in 1987, I began my business of educational tourism, of bringing people with me to go and be elbow to elbow with Native people, you know, to go to their homes, go to their dances, go to their ceremonies, What, without an agenda, just saying that whatever whatever these families would like to share is great. You know, I didn't, I didn't tell them what they needed to do. And a lot of it was spontaneous, where we would just end up doing the things that they did. So the story about my, my uncle, Richie, who you mentioned before, is kind of another interesting story along the way. We were camped out. The, the way that we would do it is we would stay in teepees for a week at a time. So the these these programs were eight days, seven nights, and we would set up teepees, and we would live in our teepees with fires burning, and you know we would cook there, and then go take the vans and go to people's homes. And of course, the irony in that story is a lot of the programs were in the middle of the summer, and it was just hot and sweaty. <laughs> And when we would get done, like if, if they would come to visit us in our encampment, they would always be like, "All right, well, we're going to go home to our air conditioning now." And you know, <laughs> here we were, the non-indigenous people sweating it out inside the teepees <laughs> so uh, so one day we were um, we were camped out at a state park um called Fort Cobb Lake in southwestern Oklahoma. And I think we had three teepees set up. We had a group of about 20 people and this guy shows up to take, to collect the fees. So he's a Kiowa man, you know, and he's dressed, but he's dressed in the, the ranger outfit and he, he came to collect the fee for camping for the time that we were there. And he said, he said, what are you guys doing here? And, you know, I explained to him the nature of the program, what our purpose was and, how we were visiting people and going to the powwows and dances and all these different things. And he said, he said, you know, my brother probably could help you. And I said, really? I said, in what way? And he said, well, I, we, I have this brother, his name is Richie. And he's um he's kind of a, a family historian and a tribal historian. And I'm sure that he'd be happy to meet with you. And I said, okay. And he said, you know same story as before he doesn't have a phone but i'll tell you where his house is so i said okay you know I, i'll i'll give it a try so usually we found ourselves late but there was one day that we were actually ahead of schedule we we're heading back from the town of Anadarko this little native town back to where the teepees were set up and we were passing through an area called Hog Creek, which is where Richie lived. And I figured, well, you know what, I'll do is I'll just stop for a moment. I'll get out of the van and just tell him, you know, who I am and what we're doing and see if we could set up a date to come by at another time. So we parked the vans. I got out. I walked up to the door. I knocked on the door and I I said, you know, I said, hi, my name is Bob Vetter. And I said, um, I said, your brother told me about you and and um I have this group of people and he said oh well you can bring them in if you want and I said well I said no 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 that I, I didn't want to disturb you I just wanted to let you know what we were doing and he said no I knew you were coming and I said oh did you talk to your brother Willie and he said no I haven't seen Willie in a while and I said well then how did you know that I was coming And he said, I had a dream, and in my dream, God told me that somebody would show up here at my home with people from all over the world, and here you are. He said, bring them in. So I went out to the van, and I told everybody, I said, I don't really know what's going on here, I said, but we've all been invited to go into his living room. So I got the group, and we... You know, piled in like 20 people packed into his little living room and he started to talk to us. And and, um, at one point he put an iron skillet on the on the flame on the on the stove. And then he took the some green cedar, you know, the, the green part from the cedar tree that was dried and he put it on it and he started to smoke off everybody who was there which is a form of spiritual purification you probably know about. Yeah. And he smoked everybody off and, you know, began telling the stories about his great-great-grandfather who was this famous chief named Big Bo. And he started telling the stories and he started singing songs, including Big Bo's journeying song and just all these stories. And, you know, it was... An incredible experience for everybody who was there. And then over the years that I continued to do this, you know, I would always bring people to Richie's house, and including people from literally all over the world. It fulfilled what he said that his dream was. And over the years, you know, I got to know him really well. And towards the end of his life, I was visiting him one day and he said, you know, A number of people have asked me if they could write down the stories of my family and Big Bo and the things that I do in doctoring. And he said, I turn them all down. He said, but you've been coming here and you've been listening all these years. And he said, I I was wondering if you would if you would be the one to write this down for me. And I said, you know, it'll be an honor to do it. So I left and I came back with a tape recorder and I began doing the, the the tape recorded interviews with him. And I have to tell you that there's something there's something really remarkable about sitting with these elders, that a lot of times they they wouldn't answer the question that was put to them. And I knew that that was going on as I was doing the recordings. But I didn't know to what extent. And I have to say that, like, sitting there, you you sort of go into a trance state in listening to all of this. So I had all of these recordings over the course of a couple of years. And then Uncle Richie passed away before I was able to do anything with it. And he wanted this to be something that would preserve his teachings, his ways of healing, his legacy, his family. He said, because nobody in my family is keeping up with all of this. Mm. So I made him that promise. So now I took all these cassette tapes and I brought them and I had them transcribed. And I took the transcriptions and I looked at them and I said, oh my goodness, these don't answer the questions that I that I put to him. I don't know I don't know what I'm going to do with this. And it was literally, it was a Herculean effort to figure out how to take this. I literally had to cut passages up and paste them together in order to come up with a cohesive story that had a beginning, a middle, and an end. But I made him that promise, and that book was the fulfillment of that promise. Then, On a completely different part of this story. So over the course of the years that I was doing all of these programs, I was going into many different tribes. Now, Oklahoma is the home of 39 federally recognized tribes. So it has more diversity than any other state. And I was going into all these different communities, all these different tribes. The reason that that man ended up being my uncle, my uncle, is he had wanted to adopt me as a son, but another old man had adopted me as a son, Fred Parton. He was from a different tribe called the Caddo tribe. Now, Fred, in the course of adopting me and making me his son, also brought me into the peyote religion known as the Native American church. So he was the first one that I went into the teepee with For a peyote, they call it a peyote meeting or ceremony that uses this peyote as a holy sacrament. Now, my grandpa chief had always talked to me about it, but I never, over the course of the time that I was there, went to a meeting with him. But he used peyote in addition to being a traditional healer, in addition to being um, a member of a Christian church. He saw no conflict in those three different religions.
0: Interesting, yeah.
1: So just a very quick introduction to what this religion is. It started in the late 1800s, but its roots go back thousands of years because for thousands of years, peyote was used in all kinds of healing ceremonies among tribes down in Mexico. Um, and possibly even a little bit over the border into the what's now the United States. But the way that it became this, this religion is because of a Comanche named Quana Parker, who was a chief among the Comanches. Now, Quanah Parker was half white and half Comanche. And he was a warrior. He against white people, you know. He he was considered this scourge of the white settlers, but he was half white. And at one point, he decided that he wanted to go and visit his white family. His his mother had been a captive of a Comanche warrior that scooped her up and made her a captive, and eventually married her. So Quana Parker, so Quana Parker wants to meet his his white family. So he goes to Texas. And goes to stay with them on their ranch and gets deathly ill while he's there. And they call in the doctor. The doctor can't do anything with him. He's on death's door. And finally, he says, look, the only thing that's going to help me is if you can find a medicine man. Well, they tried to find a medicine man, and they couldn't find one. What they did find, though, was a curandera. Now, we mentioned curanderismo, which I haven't even gotten into in the story yet. But this is a different form of traditional medicine that comes out of Mesoamerica, including Mexico, that has ancient roots also. So this curandera showed up and she said, the first thing you need to do is take him out of that white man's house and put him in touch with the earth. So leave him outside under a ramada. So they put him under this ramada. She left. She came back with peyote that she gave to him as a medicine. Juana Parker survived and had in the back of his mind that this is a real healing medicine. Now, fast forward many, many years later, there were two men, Chivato and Pinero, who were Apaches, who were on on the run from the law, and they hid out among the Comanches. And in order to thank them, they gave them this ceremony this peyote ceremony quana parker found out about it and because of his belief in peyote as being this amazing healing medicine took it on and told all of his people we should take on this way of worship they took it on and then quana parker became this proselytizer taking this as a newfound religion and taking that ceremony into all of the other Native communities. And eventually this became a religion. And it used three things together. The ancient ways of healing of the Southern Plains tribes with the use of peyote that came out of the tribes in Mexico, along with a rudimentary form of Christianity in the form of the way that prayer is done inside the teepee. This is what I walked into with my dad, Fred, who brought me in. And my first experience in that teepee was so deeply profound to me. I I said that the ceremony itself is so beautiful that it brought me to tears. And for the first time in my life, that became a religion that I said that I I could adopt. I could consider myself a member of that religion now this because is after so having deeply touched yeah this is you're, after you're, having studied world view. religions yeah. and yeah, yeah. you know comparative religion all of those were things that i thought were fascinating but i never thought of any religion as being one that i would belong to until they this were
0: head constructs and here you had this experience that that moved you to your core I need to I need to just reflect a little bit about how welcoming all of these people are of you and white people coming into their homes. And you talked about the Apache guy and how, you know, his uh, he, he was um, you know, back in the day the settlers <laughs> didn't like that. I mean there there was there was so much animosity. Obviously we know that history. So it's interesting to me that, that all of these people and all of your stories welcome you. So easily into their world. And why is that, do you think?
1: Well that's a good question. Um I think that in the case of all of the people that I got to know, that they separated they were able to separate their feelings about what the white system had done to them, as opposed to me as a person. Uh And over the course of the years that I was there, I probably made every blunder that a person could make. I probably bungled my way through every conceivable social situation and hopefully learned in the process. I mean, it's kind of a hard thing to say, but... You know, the the term that each tribe uses for themselves almost without exception means human beings. You know, mm-hmm. any tribe that you can think of, the word that we have or the word that they use for themselves, that's often two different terms, but that whatever term they use for themselves usually translates to mean the people, the principal people, the, the real human beings. And I would like to think that over the course of those years, that they taught me how to be a human being.
0: That's so beautiful. And you're a grandson to somebody and a son to somebody and a nephew to somebody else. And just that whole, so there's two things on my mind. One is just that welcoming. And I love what you said, their ability their ability to separate the oppression of a history and a group and a way of life, from you as a human being, because if we could do that, you know, all those divisions in our world today—whether it's you know left and right, and black and white, and you know, uh, vaccinated and unvaccinated—I mean, we're thinking of all the divisions now. If if we if we were able to be like your friends and be able to separate a person's position, a person's history, and everything. From the person and welcome the person. This is what it's going to take, I think, for us to create a beautiful world. And um, and so, th- what a great example that is! I mean, very, very great example. And then you're being—I I, just—I just love the tradition uh, of welcoming somebody into your family by making them a relative. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And it, it, it kind of, you know, on the one hand, it seems like how sweet that is. And it is. I don't mean to say that it's not. There are two other there's things responsibility
0: that are, too, that, well, mean. that's what
1: I was going to say. Yeah. That there's, <laughs> there's two sides to it. The one is, yeah, sure. You know, we'll make you a family member. But the other side is, well, now I have a responsibility that, that extends to them in the same way that I do to my own family members
0: right right and
1: you know in the a long a long time ago during the time where there were all of these warring tribes and nations by making somebody a relative it was a way to try to keep the peace Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because if you were a relative of that family you're not going to make war on that nation yeah so it was a way of building alliances between people Beautiful, and I and I also I don't want to give you the impression that I've never had any friction. <laughs> so, <Of course> not. <laughs> I'm, I'm, we do I'm,
0: idealize things. Yeah, like that. I'm yeah. giving you the
1: highlights right. of the people in a number of different tribes who adopted, sure. made me sure. We
0: a we member. do have a tendency to to you know, fictionalize other groups and in yeah. history and and whatnot. So anyway, through all of this, then. You had you had this experience in this religious ceremony and said, "This is, this is my, this is my thing, or this is my religion, or this is my practice." And and is this what you use in healing?
1: No. No. Okay. So now <laughs> I'll right, give right, you the to that. I'll give you the part of the story that links this to
0: okay to
1: the healing practice. So after Fred passed away, the man who took me into the Native American church, there was another old man who. He had been, he said he had wanted to make me his son, but he didn't want to infringe on Fred because he knew Fred, even though they were from two different tribes. They had actually played baseball together when they were young guys. And his name, this man's name was Moses Starr, and he was a a Cheyenne elder. So Moses uh, took me into the traditional ways of his people. You know, I got to be around the Sundance, the sweat lodge, the ceremonial pipe, all of these other traditions. And at one point, you know, he was not he had been around the Native American church in his tribe as a boy, but that was not his way of worship. But it clearly was mine. So I wanted to I wanted to honor him in the best way that I knew how, which was by sponsoring a meeting, a peyote ceremony. For him to ask for blessings for him and for his healing. And so I sponsored it. And I, you know, even though I was from, I had been going to all these peyote ceremonies with that other tribe, I didn't know anything about the Cheyenne tribe. To make a long story short, for four years, I sponsored these ceremonies for my dad, Moses, and got to be friendly with the members of that tribe who eventually invited me to become a member. And I said, "Well, you know, I live in New York, and I can't go on a regular basis, but if there's one ceremony that you can think of that is important, I'll try to get to that when I can." And they said, "Well, you know, probably the, the annual pilgrimage ceremony when we go down to the Mexican border and get the medicine and bring it back up here to Oklahoma. So I had to plan to fly down to Southern Texas to be there for this ceremony. And there are two places that you could fly to San Antonio or Corpus Christi. I ended up flying into San Antonio. Now, when I got there, all of a sudden I remembered back to what had happened when I left Oklahoma, when I left the university, I sort of, uh, cut short what I was going to do. I had become interested academically in curanderismo, this traditional ancient Mesoamerican form of healing. And my intention was to do a short-term study in San Antonio, Texas, because I understood that curanderismo was practiced by the people in the Mexican-American community there. And then I would go down to Oaxaca And spend a year in the southern state of Oaxaca studying with curanderos there because that is like a hotbed of curanderismo. All these years later, I find myself in San Antonio for the first time because that's where I was going to go. That's where I was going to rent a car and then go down to the peyote ceremony. When I came back to San Antonio, I said, hmm. I wonder if I could find out what's going on, you know, with people practicing curanderismo here. I tried and tried and tried, and honestly, it had mostly died out. And I I somehow found this article about a woman who was a curandera who had gotten together with an anthropologist and gave a talk on curanderismo at a local library. Now, in the Mm -hmm. article, it said that she worked at this store In downtown San Antonio part-time. The day before I was going to fly back to New York, I went in. She was there. Her name was Berta, and uh, she's known as La Golondrina. And she was working there, and I spent the entire day with her, learning from her, and felt like I had known her my entire life. My flight the next day got canceled, and Southwest Airlines gave you the choice of staying longer. So I stayed for four more days and was with her day and night learning from her. And that began my first, she was my first teacher in Corinderismo. And then I had a series of other teachers ended up like, I'm, I'm like leaving out huge parts of this story. But eventually, I ended up with one teacher in Oaxaca, Mexico, again, where I would have gone had I stayed at the University of Oklahoma during that research. He's the one who really taught me the way of the Temascal, the traditional sweat lodge ceremony. So I took all of the healing practices, the one-on-one healing practices that I learned in Curanderismo, and I believe that it became informed by the things that I learned in Southern Plains Medicine that all of that way of prayer all of that way of being with someone who needs help came to inform my way that I would eventually come to interpret Mexican curanderismo
0: so interesting so you you became a healer in your own right integrating all of these experiences and and so tell us a little bit about what you do for people today.
1: Yeah, sure. So um so I it I have a I have a Tamascal, which is the, the traditional sweat lodge, and in, in the in the old days, that was considered to be the original hospital. And there are there are Tamascal ruins all over, you know, the ancient ruins of Mesoamerica. It goes back literally thousands of years. And it was believed that you could go in there to be healed of your sickness if you're already sick, or to uh, prevent illness. So that's one way of healing. And then the other is more the one-on-one healing. And um, there are two or three primary tools. One is the plática, which is the heart-to-heart talk, which is really at the basis of all of the healing. Now, in Mexico, that tends to be a relatively short part of what you what you do with the one-on-one work. But in addition to meeting these healers and working with these healers in Mexico, I also did an apprenticeship with a curandera in the United States named Elena Avila. She wrote a book that if you're interested in, I highly recommend called Woman Who Glows in the Dark. Now, what's fascinating about Elena, she's since then passed away also, but Elena had grown up in Mexico. Then her parents moved to Southern Texas, but she became, she was schooled in the Western way of looking at things. And she sort of turned her back on the old ways of her people. She became a psychiatric nurse. And then after she was a psychiatric nurse, went back to curanderismo, and sort of combined those two in her way of working. So I was profoundly influenced by Elena's way of working, where the this platica becomes the heart of the work. And then the second part is something called a limpia, which is a spiritual cleansing ceremony. And this is where you take the concerns of the platica, and they are... Ceremonialized, in one way or another. So there are there are uh, flowered waters that are used. There's a raw egg that's used sometimes for diagnosis, sometimes to absorb toxic energy. There are herbs that are used. Um, we also use tools from um, tools that are to combat something called susto, which is spiritual fright that we experience. It's it's it trauma. overlaps trauma, but it's not okay. it's not identical with it. But we use soul okay. retrieval ceremonies. And I, you know, I was really thinking about this just the other day, and I I, I came up with this phrase that I'm actually going to use on my website that I think summarizes what I'm talking about. When the heart and the mind meet, that's when the soul work begins. And what I mean by that is you know you can you can turn to Western psychology, which is all about the mind in my opinion, that's incomplete. Mm-hmm. You can look to emotional uh, the emotional foundation of problems in our lives that by itself, I believe is incomplete. But when we bring spirituality into it, and we unite the heart and the mind together, it illuminates the part that our difficulties have to tell us about our own unique soul imprint, our reason for being in this world. And that is really at the core of the work that I do now. So most of the people who I work with one-on-one are healers already in one way or another, and are maybe looking for a way to finish the healing process in themselves and use that as a way of understanding the nature of their gift, what we call in curanderismo the don. The don is your gift. Now, classically, that is believed to be a gift that is given only to some people that you're born with a don, or you're born into a family where maybe a grandparent is a healer, and they teach you, and you become a healer. My way of looking at it is that each one of us has a don, and the don has to do with your biggest problem. The issues that you need to heal in yourself become an opportunity that might lead to addiction, it might lead to hopelessness, giving up, or it might lead to your healing, depending on how you respond to that calling. If you are able to heal it, that becomes your way. That is a, a an entry point to the way that you have of healing others to share your personal medicine with them. That's kind of the formula that that I've come upon, and that is the guiding principle in my work.
0: So let me just make sure I understand this. So we we all we all have some kind of trauma. We all have some healing to do. So I think what you're saying is, ha- however I go about the healing of me, is is informing then how I might be a healer to heal others.
1: Exactly and your experience like, even attracts the people who are going to come to you
0: like like attracts like yeah so i would attract the same people with the same kind of trauma or the same kind of healing needs do you think that we are all healers
1: i think that we all have a healing potentiality
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the that, same like way that
0: manifest it in this world but this life maybe but that we all hold that potential
1: yeah exactly um, so, you know, there are a lot of people who don't choose to be healers. I, I think that we all have the ability within us. I mean, there there are people, uh, for example, you know, I have a I have a, a dear friend in Mexico. She's a member of an indigenous community called the Mihe, and she has marks on her arm that she was born with that tell her, told them that she was destined to be a healer, but she didn't want to be a healer. And when she was dying, she was told by her uncle that this is because she turned her back on what she was destined for.
0: Her purpose, yeah.
1: And so she, you know, went through a ceremony that healed that, and then she became the the main healer for her community, which is what she is now. She's a, a midwife or partera, but also a curandera.
0: So interesting. Um, I, I'm also curious with all of your the healing that you've seen, you've experienced, and the the different modalities and all of the traditions, the native traditions that you've been exposed to. Um, what is your impression of Western medicine?
1: Well, I'm not I, I'm not opposed to Western medicine. I, I guess what I really think is that I look at I look at this as complementary medicine. So for example, you know, I have a I have a client that I meet with regularly who she is herself a healer and she found out that she has cancer. And I I would never I would never tell her don't, you know, don't seek western treatment for cancer. I would say, well, let's explore what the roots are of this what caused it in the first place, the emotional cause of it, in addition to going through the treatments that it's going to take to remove it. So, one doesn't preclude the other. There are things that Western medicine is really good for. I mean, I you know, if you break a bone, you have physical trauma, go to the hospital. Um. There are things that it's not as effective for. So I, I think that the two work hand in hand. What I guess what I, I guess what I'm saying is that what I'm describing is a spiritual form of healing that may or may not overlap a physical aspect. Yeah. If you have time for this story, I'll tell you one more about my mother.
0: Well, we can keep going. Um, I we're probably we're over an hour now, probably like an hour and maybe even ten minutes in. But go ahead, go ahead, tell the story. If and then and then we'll wrap it up. Does that sound good?
1: Sure, that sounds good. Okay. So years ago, um, my mother my mother ended up with inflammatory breast cancer, which you know they wouldn't even they wouldn't even stage. They wouldn't even say what the stage was. It was just okay. you know very, very grave situation. And I went down to visit her. She lives in North Carolina. I went down to visit her and I took her to the various doctors and the specialists. They began the chemo, you know, and they went through like every, everything that you can think of was in this, this battery of what was going to go on. And she wasn't really able to deal with all of it you know she wasn't able to deal with the 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 toughness of deal of the the chemotherapy and the radiation and the surgery and everything you know it was it, it was a terrible terrible time and at one point she was taken to the emergency room she was put in the hospital while she was undergoing all of this and they put her in there and They finally, uh, put her in, I'm not sure what it's called, but where, where you can't be left alone, where you're a danger to yourself, you know, and they, they had her in, um, the the beds with the, with the, with the, the, so you can't get out like the, the little, the bars on it around the bed and everything. And I met with the doctors and the doctors said, you know, your, your mother is, she's, um you're going to have to put her in a home because she's never going to be able to live on her own again and she's totally dissociated she thought that the the um i don't know that that they, she was being observed through the television i i mean it was a it was an awful awful situation now my trip down there that time to put her in the home and research what facility would be the best for her Unfortunately, coincided with a ceremony that I had sponsored for somebody in Oklahoma, and I explained to them that I couldn't, um, that I I wasn't sure whether I was going to be able to be there, but I want I want to honor this old man with the ceremony, whether I can be there or not. I want you guys to go on with it, and they agreed, and. I got down there, I dealt with the situation. I got there, my mother said, "You know, I'm I'm glad you're here because I couldn't remember. I wasn't sure whether I had a son or I just imagined that I had a son." Mm-hmm. Uh, it was heartbreaking. It was it was the most difficult situation I ever dealt with in my entire life. So I got her I I researched, I went around, I traveled to all these different places, found the facility that would keep her that, according to the doctors, is what she would die in. I got her placed in it, and I flew that day to Oklahoma to be there for the ceremony. And when I got there, we were inside the teepee. And I didn't, there's one point where they ask, you know, does anybody have any particular concerns that they want to pray for? And I didn't want to mention my mother because I wanted it to be for this old man that I was honoring in there. But at one point, towards morning, the person running the ceremony said, you know, he explained the situation about what was going on with my mother. And he said, you know, occasionally we'll do what, what I'd like to do now. I'd like to ask Bob to stand up and stand facing towards the fire. So my back was to the door and I was standing facing the fire. And then one by one, members of there there were in that teepee, not only the members of that tribe, but a number of other tribes, some visitors had come guests and each one that stood up prayed over me and prayed for my mother and prayed using these sacred instruments like the, the fans with, with various bird feathers and there was this one man who prayed fervently over me, I mean, for a long time. And he said, you know, you're going to come out of here and things are going to be different. He said, you might not believe it right now, but something's going to change in here tonight. And I remember thinking to myself, you probably wouldn't say that if you knew how serious this situation really is. And the ceremony was over, we got out, and it was late. I mean, we went in late at night, and we came out the next afternoon, having been in there all of those hours without sleep. We came out, and everybody started heading to where the the big meal was for the the community, because when you sponsor the meeting, you hold this big meal after everything's over for anybody in the community who wants to come. And I went back to my car, my rented car, and I pulled out the cell phone and I called my mother. And she came out of it that night during that ceremony. Wow! She was back to her old self. She was wow. a normal person. And my mother is still alive to this day and oh, living goodness. independently on her own. That's the power. It, you know, you could tell me that it was a coincidence that
0: no, absolutely it would have come not. out of it
1: anyway. But I, no. I believe that it was the power of this medicine, the prayers, and all of that collective intentionality.
0: That is so beautiful. What a fabulous story. I, I, I pray with people. Every week, I have people who I have regular prayer calls for. Some are um, being treated for cancer, or some are just dealing with life and kids and whatnot. And I also have regular prayer calls. We we pray for different. We pray for our nation. We pray for animals. We pray for children. We, but that there's it, it's so powerful. I know what you're talking about. It's not it's the same thing I'm doing, but the intention of prayer or your medicine ceremony. There's a lot of power in it and the healing of your mother is, is you know i think we're just so surprised at things like that but i also think that that's probably the way life is designed you know it's like it's designed for these things to happen not like there's such a miracle but like oh yeah mom got healed oh yeah you know so and so got healed or or nobody even gets sick anymore what a beautiful story and did you um In that space of being prayed over, did you release yourself? I mean, kind of surrender yourself, I should say, to the intentions of all these people? Or did you still kind of have in your mind, oh, this isn't going to work?
1: It was interesting because I had two things going on at exactly the same time. Yeah, and the ego and spirit. Exactly. That's perfect. You you stated it perfectly. The two were right there with me.
0: Yeah, but your your yeah. ego is able to settle down enough for your spirit to to dominate. Not dominate, but be prevalent, I think. Yeah, I common. mean
1: that's yeah. exactly that's that's exactly how I would describe it. In fact, I, I never articulated it that way before, but you, you did it for me. So thank you for tying it up with a neat bow.
0: Well good. There's a reason for our conversation today.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I know you're blessing everyone who's listening. So to wrap it up, what I want to give this you last words and also, you know, share your uh, your website or your teachings or how how you can be of service to people.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um so I have a website of my own called Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures. Um that's one way people can get to me. Um you can also go to my website www.bobvetter.com, so bobvetter.com. And there is a freebie on there that I think anybody who's made it through this far into the interview might be interested in um, the game that I put together. The game is called Sustos, and it's based on this idea that we each undergo sustos these spiritual frights that are connected with one another that are our calling to be healed and the game is based on the idea that there is this um we it's based on well i'll tell you what i based it on you know the game shoots and ladders that's a child's game
0: yeah did
1: you know that that game actually has its origins in hinduism i did not so the game was originally designed for Hindu monks, so that they would understand uh, the the nature of their spiritual journey.
0: I can see this now that you're talking about it, because you're, you're going up and then down and up and down and up and down. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And so I came up with this idea. I was like, you know what? A susto is like that. Because every time you have a susto, it could be the cause to take a ladder up or a chute that drops you down. Because sometimes... Right. For, for some a susto that is not addressed, it can actually create psychological and spiritual disorders or addiction, as I spoke about before. So I designed this game that can be played by a group of people using a die, like from a set of dice. And you move the pieces along the board and talk to each other about the experiences that you had. Uh, as you find your yourself on these different squares on the board. Oh wow! So it, it's so you a
0: use it a, a, a family gathering or a, a gathering of friends. You can play this game.
1: I would say gathering of friends probably okay. more <laughs> than family. <laughs> I, I well, I, it depends on your family, Carol. I mean, <laughs> you could do it with your family if you want. <laughs> <laughs> but but I've done it a number of times with, with people that I know and it's fascinating because you find out things about your friends that you never knew.
0: Yes. I and it, I, I it, can see it that. takes
1: you to the point of fulfillment of of what it takes to to have fulfilled your potentiality. That's the purpose okay. of the game. So it's there, it's a downloadable that anybody can have. You can find um access to my uh to my podcasts, so there's a whole bunch of them with healers from a bunch of different traditions um and learn a lot there, so that all of that's there information on working one on one with me for anybody who might choose to go that route. so there's a lot of a lot of resources there. there's an article in it, there's a a video of Laurencio, one of my teachers performing. Um, Olympia, the spiritual cleansing ceremony that I mentioned, so there's a yes. whole bunch of stuff there,
0: yeah, and I have to just make a little comment about your website because I love the color orange, and I've never seen a website that uses orange, really. <laughs> And I I, think, I really thought that's I, it was one of the first things when I checked you out. I'm like, oh, look at that website. It's using orange. Um, so it's very cool in your branding. Um, well, I'll have all those links also on the podcast uh, episode page um, on my website, thespiritreform.org. Um so Bob, thank you so much for sharing your story. I, I think we could talk for uh, a few more days.
1: <laughs> no doubt. A,
0: <laughs> yeah, you have such a rich, you know. Most of us, most of us, just kind of, you know, grew up and went to high school and then college and got a job and found our way. And you know, we have our our interesting, intricate intricacies and side stories. But you're just delving into the culture of the indigenous peoples and having these just really unique experiences and 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 then putting it all together to be this. Uh, this healer it it just feels like you've really answered your calling and that you're really a blessing in the world and i appreciate so much you're sharing so generously today with all of us
1: well those are some very kind words and i i appreciate that so much and appreciate the work that you're doing here as well and wish all good things to you and your listeners
0: yeah thank you thank you um, so, and everybody, thank you for listening, and I now close The Spiritual Forum. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about us, check out the thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. We're a nonprofit corporation and depend solely on donations from people like you. If you find that you're benefiting from your listening, we encourage you to donate on our website, thespiritualforum.org. Our music is by Matt Nelson. Sound engineering is by Mark Jasielski.